Hey guys, thanks for watching online. We are honored that you chose to give us this time. We have people watching from all over the world. If you're in the Middle Tennessee area, please come and be a part of one of our local campuses because your experience with church shouldn't end online. It should just begin there or be a supplement to being involved in a local community. So come uh, be a part of one of our local campuses. And, and if you live outside of our area, please contact us. You can contact us through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email us. Uh, we will be glad to do some research where you live and find a good, healthy church to recommend to you to plug into because we want you to be involved in a community. So we hope these messages bless you. Uh, let us know if we can help you in any way. Uh, God bless you again. Thanks for watching, and I look forward to seeing you really soon. You know, Muhammad Ali, man, he's one of the, arguably the greatest boxer of all time, right? One of the greatest boxers, uh, arguably. And I, some of you kids don't know uh, Muhammad Ali. Uh, you know, maybe you heard about his death recently, but Luis, I know you know Muhammad Ali, boxer down here. And, and one of the, I mean, cause he was, if you knew him, you hated him or you loved him, but you didn't ignore him because, you know, he, he always told people he was the greatest, right? I mean, man, he was the greatest. He had that mouth and everything. But one time he got on a plane and he didn't buckle up and the, and the flight attendant came by and said, Mr. Ali, you need to buckle your seatbelt. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she said, well, Mr. Ali, Superman don't need no plane either, so you better buckle up. And so, you know, he, he buckled up. And listen, he, he, here's, the, here's why I started with that story. Because the greatest favor that anybody can do us is to let us know that we ain't all that. You know, I mean, we, we don't like it, but we need it, right? And today, that's what Paul's going to do in Romans 11. We're going to end Romans 11 today, and Paul is going to let us know we ain't all that. God's God, I'm not, okay? That's what he says. God's God, and I'm not. That's our bottom line. If you can remember this, it'll revolutionize your life. This seems like, eh, so this will revolutionize your life if you get up every day and, and you tell yourself, don't look in the mirror and go, people love me. I am somebody. What you need to do is look in the mirror and say, God's God, I'm not, okay? If you'll remember that, it'll revolutionize your life. And so let's dive in. We're going to look at verses 28 through verse 36, the end of the chapter. In verses 28 through 32, he's going to sum up everything he said in 9 through 11, and then he's going he's to shift gears in 33. So let's look at 28, 29. It says, it says this, as regards to the gospel, they, he's talking about the Jews, as regards to the gospel, they're enemies of God for your sake. Enemies, now, important word, right? So, they're enemies for your sake. As regard to election, they're beloved for the sake of the forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, incredible passage, right? So he's going to sum up what he's done in chapter 9 through 11. And here he says, to understand Israel, you have to understand the rejection of the gospel and their divine election. You have to understand both, the rejection and their election, all right? And so he says, as regards to the gospel, uh, they're enemies for the sake of for your sake. As regards to election, they're beloved for the sake of the forefathers. Now, uh, so let's talk about both of those things for a moment, all right? We've got to understand he's summing up what he said at 9 through 11. And what he's been saying is that the Jews are enemies of God for your sake when it comes to the gospel. The Bible clearly says, now you think about enemies of God, ooh, that sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? That sounds like a little, that's, that's strong language. The Bible clearly says that people who reject the gospel and don't know Christ are enemies of God. That's what the Bible says, okay? That they're enemies of God. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. You're either a friend of God or you're an enemy of God, right? Now, that doesn't sound very politically correct. 
but it's very biblically correct, right? I mean, people, you might say, well, that's harsh, that's unloving, uh, you know, that's even hateful. But here's what I want you to understand. If you believe the Bible, and I do, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I believe the Bible contains the words of God. I believe the Bible is absolute truth, has no error. And here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the only way to heaven, the only way to be right with God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father except through me, Jesus said that, okay? So that means if Jesus, if the only way God can be loved, adored, worshiped, and enjoyed is through Jesus, and the Bible says that, and I believe that, folks, the most unloving thing I can do is not tell you that, okay? Many people would think it would be unloving and hateful for me to say, Jesus is the only way. If you don't know Jesus, you're going to hell. Folks, the most unloving thing I can do is not tell you that if I believe that, right? That's the the ultimate act of hate is for me to not tell you that if I believe that. And so that's what Paul is doing. Paul is, he's driving these things home so that the Romans and we would have a passion for sharing the gospel with everyone everywhere. Now he's talking to them specifically about the Jews. There was bad blood between the Jews and the Gentiles. They didn't like each other very much. Okay, And so Paul knew that the Gentiles, now being Christian, there were some Christians, I mean some Jews in the church, predominantly Gentile. Paul knew that the Gentiles who didn't like the Jews probably wouldn't be motivated to tell them about Jesus. For all they cared, they could go to hell, not heaven, right? And so I'm not going to tell them about Jesus. And, and Paul said, no, 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 no. You have got to be passionate about telling the, Jew, the Jews about Jesus, even though they are your enemies. He's specifically, contextually talking about the Jews. So we need to share our faith with the Jews. Principally, we need to share our faith with everyone, everywhere, including our enemies. Do you care about your enemies going to heaven? I mean, man, when we think about sharing our faith, obviously we want your mom and them, right? How's your mom and them? We want your mom and them to know Jesus. But what about your enemy? What about your enemy? That's the principle. Are you sharing the gospel with everyone, even your enemies? Now, Paul also knew that there were people in the church that would think, man, we're going to spend a lot of money to share the gospel with them over there. Why are we going to spend money to share with them over there? Because remember, he's writing so that uh, he, can, he can help them understand the gospel so that they will support him as he goes to Spain to preach the gospel. And he knows the people are going to be saying, why are we going to send money over there when there's all kind of lost people right here in Rome, right? I mean, and Paul, by the way, there is one Jew that gives their life to Jesus for every 100 Gentiles. The Jews are hard-headed, hard-hearted to the gospel, not many of them, so we get better return on investment to the Gentiles. So let's take it to the Gentiles and forget the Jews. And Paul said, no, 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 no. We can't do that. We can never forget the Jews, and we can never not evangelize the Jews specifically, right? We can never not do that, he says, uh, uh, or anyone. We can't say, well, we can't go there. We, can't, we shouldn't spend money there because the Great Commission says that you'll be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, right? Uh, that, that's how Luke puts it. Matthew says, go into all nations. So it's not here versus there. It's everywhere. Share the gospel is principally, Right? And so he says, God's not through with the Gentiles. I'm sorry, the Jews. He's not through with them. Remember, they're enemies, and when it comes to the gospel, they're enemies of God for your sake. In other words, all Jews up until this day who've stiff-armed Jesus are damned. They're enemies. That's what he says. As is with everyone, not just Jews. Anyone who stiff-arms Jesus and dies having stiff-armed Jesus is an enemy of God and will be damned forever. That's, That's what the Bible says, right? But within that, there's a remnant. 
There's a faithful remnant of Jews, Jews for Jesus, Messianic Jesus. There's a faithful remnant who believe that Jews are, I'm sorry, that Jesus was the Messiah. As a matter of fact, one of our leaders in our church in Brussels, I was talking with him this week. He was in our sermon prep meeting. We Skype in. When I do sermon prep meeting, we Skype those guys in. And so I go over and it's a discipling time. And one of the leaders there is from Greece. His name's Antonios. And uh, he's not one of the Greek guys that you've met. His name's Antonios. And he was saying during this message prep, he said, I lived in Sweden and a, a Messianic Jew shared the gospel with me. And I was saved through the ministry of, the, of a Messianic Jew. Isn't that incredible? There are Jews for Jesus. There are Jews, who, that's the faithful remnant. But one day, as we learned last week, the, the, there's going to be a, a tide change. The shift's going to take place when the saturation point, the fullness of the Jews has come in. It reaches its saturation point. God's going to flip the switch and the Jews will be softened. And there's going to be so many Jews coming to know Jesus, it'll make your head swim, right? So, so God, they're, they're, they're enemies for, the, for your sake when it comes to the gospel, but because of election, because, but in regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God doesn't owe them. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying God owes them uh, because of their forefathers. He's saying that God made a promise to Abraham and their forefathers, and God's promises are irrevocable. That ought to make you happier than a UT fan after a Florida win right there. I mean, just think about it. His promises are irrevocable. What does that mean? That means God's promise to you, his promise for salvation is irrevocable. You may fail God, but he will never fail you. He will never let you down. You, if you're truly a believer, you can't ever lose that because it's on his promise. That ought to make you happy. That ought to make you Yahoo shout party. That ought to make you absolutely come unglued out of your mind because God is so good, right? So let's move on and look at verses 30 through 32. He says this, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. Now I want you to notice how many times mercy and disobedience is said. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Man, he says two words, disobedience and mercy, four times. Over and over and over. He says, I'm about to sneeze, I'm sorry. <laughs> he says disobedience and mercy four times over and over and over. He's trying to drive home something. It's only in the context of disobedience that you can truly understand mercy. He's saying, remember, Gentiles, that you were once disobedient. It would do us all good to stop and remember, especially if you were an adult. If you were saved as an adult, it would stop and do you really good to remember how you were before you were saved. Because you see, many times we forget that. And when we forget that, we begin to look at others differently and, and we don't ever need to forget right? And he says, you were disobedient. We can only understand disobedience in the context of mercy. If we don't understand the gravity of our disobedience, we will never understand the beauty of God's mercy. That's what he's saying. We'll never understand the beauty of God's mercy. And then he, he, he talks about how the means of salvation relate to the end. In other words, what's God's plan in salvation? What's God's plan? What's the purpose? And so let's look at it in Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 11 through 16. Here's what he says. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles, 
Okay, so Paul here is in Ephesians talking the same thing. Sheds great light on what he's saying in Romans 11. There are really 9 through 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, because if you remember, circumcision was the sign of the Old Testament covenant. Jews were circumcised, Gentiles were not, because the circumcision was a sign that they were cut that they were cut, you know, out of the world and set apart unto God, right? And that it would also be cut out of the kingdom if they did not keep their covenant bargain or their covenant agreement. And so, they're into the covenant. And so, therefore, they were cut. They were circumcised, right? So, they were called, we Gentiles were called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. We were not a part of the covenant in their eyes, all right? So, and we weren't a part of the Old Testament covenant, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create for himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might be reconciled and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So in Ephesians 2, Paul tells us exactly how the means of salvation relate to the end he's talking about in Romans 11. Not two people, but one. Not two trees, but one. Not the church not replacing Israel, but the church continuing spiritual Israel. His, his goal is the Jews, Gentiles, both be in heaven. His goal is one people, one body, one church, one Israel. That's his goal, right? That, that's what he's doing. The Jews and the, and the, uh, the, the, the Gentiles have both been disobedient, but in God's sovereign plan, the disobedience of the Jews led the, the Gentiles' experience of mercy. It'll be the Gentiles' experience of mercy that will lead to the Jews' experience of mercy that will bring the two together into one body. That's, that, that's what Paul's been saying, and that's why in verse 32, Paul says, God is merciful even in judgment. He's merciful even in judgment. He is consigned judgment and damnation to both so that he might have, both might have mercy and salvation. He says, in other words, that, that God is merciful even in judgment. God's purpose in both disobedience and damnation of the Jews and the Gentiles is mercy and salvation of the Jews and the Gentiles, right? And so, so let's go on in in verses 33 through 36. He says this, oh, the depth of, the, now I want you to understand, and we're going to talk about it. He shifts gears here. He shifts gears, and I'm going to talk about what's going on here. Paul shifts gears. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, he's quoting Isaiah, or has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be, that he might be repaid? That's Job. For, for from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, as I've said, in, in 28 through 32, he's summing up all of chapters 9 through 11. 
Now, I've said for the last couple of weeks, we're almost through with 11, and we're going to start 12. 12 is the, I've said, the application, very practical part of Romans. We're finishing out 11 today, and I said next week we can start the very practical application part. We've been very theological, right? I mean, man, Paul has been, Romans is a theological mountain. The first 11 chapters of Romans, there is no theological anything like it ever written. It is a theological mountain. And I've said, man, we're going to start the application part in chapter 12 which is true. But I want to say a couple of things about that. Really, it starts right here in verse 33. He didn't wait till he gets to chapter 12. He really starts right here in verse 33. Now, I also want you to know, we're going to see how in a moment. I also want you to know, and I want to stop because I thought about that this week, of saying we're going to start in the application uh, and the practical part in chapter 12. And I thought this week, I need to stop and make very clear. That doesn't mean the first 11 chapters, which are all theology, are not practical. Okay? Because theology is as practical as you can get. Theology means everything in practicality and an application to life. Uh, let, me, let me give you some examples here. One, when you come to church, this is a rhetorical question, all right? This is an introspective question, very rhetorical. Don't answer it. But do you come to church, when you come to church, are you coming for you or are you coming for God? Now, hopefully, you're going to get some great stuff for you, but in, in your purpose, are you coming for you or are you coming for God? In other words, are you coming so that you'll get some good stuff? Man, I need to be a better dad. I need to, have, I need to just know how to get the job, how, how to love my job. Uh, I, I, or is it, man, I need to know how good God is. Now, as, you re- rhetorically, as I rhetorically ask that, I want you to really think about it because I hope you get both, okay? But a- a- our main objective is to give you God. Our main objective is to help you to understand God because what, how you view your work in large part will depend upon how you view God. How you view your marriage in large part will depend upon how you view God. How you view parenting, how you view life will in large part depend upon how you view God. Your beliefs determine your behavior. So uh, we might every now and then do a sermon series on five ways to love your job, four ways to have a better marriage, three ways to manage your money better. We might do those every now and then, but that's not the steady diet you're going to get here. Because what we want you to understand is more than four ways to have a, 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 we want you to go a little bit deeper and we want you to understand how big your God is. Because when you begin to understand how big God is, all those other things begin to fall into place. All those other things, when you understand God and life hits you in the mouth, and life will hit you in the mouth, (laughs) okay? I mean, life will leave you dazed and confused every now and then. And when it does, all those four things about how to have a good marriage, but life has hit you in the mouth in your marriage, all those things sort of start going out the window. But when you know how big your God is and you know he's sovereign over your marriage, then everything begins to make a difference, right? When I can tell you how to four or five things to do to love your job better, but when I begin to help you to understand the purposes of God in creating you and and then in saving you and then put sending you out into to be a missionary in your job when you understand what your job is really about for the glory of God that's a little bit deeper than four or five ways you can things you can do to help your job be better right and so so the greatest thing that we can do is to teach you the immeasurable greatness of God we need to know folks in other words we need to know I'm not all that we need to know God is God and I'm not now, you see, the world thinks, oh, that's, I don't, I don't know that. Shouldn't you help people's self-esteem? Shouldn't church be about, oh, helping us feel good about ourselves? And, and folks, I, I hope you understand yourself a whole lot better. We don't want to come and just tell you you stink all the time and you're horrible, right? And, I mean, go home and come back next week and I'll tell you that again. I mean, that's not what we want you to feel. But the bottom line is the worst thing we can do is to tell you that, man, you are the center of God's world, that you're the center of your world, that everything's about you and your happiness. It's the worst thing we can do. 
Think about it. That's not what God did for Job. Did you know that? That's not what God did for Job. Now think about Job. He quotes Job here, but think about Job. Man, life hit Job square in the mouth. Right? Job, I mean, Job is in the middle of a horrible time in his life. And God didn't tell him, hey, Job, man, you just need to get up today and you just need to look in the mirror and you need to tell yourself that you are somebody. You need to tell yourself that God loves you, that people love you. And today, I mean, he didn't tell Job, you're a great man, Job. Just think about how great you are. Think positive thoughts, Job, and if you believe it, it'll become a reality. That's not what God told Job. What did God tell Job? He didn't say, Job, think about how great you are. He said, Job, you need to get in there and think about how great I am. And as Job began to think about how great God is and humble Job and he began to worship, made a complete difference in, in Job's life, right? And so, so as we come here to verses 33 through 36, I say that because I've been saying, I put all that in because I've been saying 12 begins the application. And I want you to know, man, that theology is, theology should begin and end with, with, with worship and praise and application. If you understand God's riches, it radically, radically transforms uh, how you think about everything. It's the most application part of anything. So now, but when we get back, back, back down to verse 11, he really begins to help us apply all these things in a very practical way. In worship, in verse 30, 33, he says, all of these things I've been talking about should lead you to a white hot worship of God. You see, Paul's been climbing this mountain of theology. He's been climbing it. Think about all of the, the, the what Paul's been climbing. He's come out of the gate, and, and I mean, th- just think from Romans 1 and 2 and 3, all, 8. Now, think, think about everything Paul's been saying. He's been saying, man, we deserve the wrath of God because we're sinners. There's none righteous. No, not one. None is good. Not even one. No one seeks God. Remember, that's what he says. He says that the wage of sin is death. All have sinned. He's, uh, Paul's been telling us in Romans that we've all sinned. We were born sinners and we deserve the wrath of God. Nothing you can do about it. But he said, Jesus Christ himself did something when you couldn't. He died your death in your place to pay your price, your, your debt. He did it, right? And when you surrender to him, he applies that righteousness to you. That's what Paul's been saying, the gloriousness of the gospel that caused him to stop and go, what? Then he he comes into Romans 8 and he says, I know life's going to hit you in the mouth. Things are not always going to be good. Your marriage is going to be in a wreck sometimes. Your kids are going to be crazy sometimes. You're going to lose your job sometimes. Things are not going to be going good sometimes. And when that happens, here's what I want you to know. Romans 8 says, for all all things work together for good. Those who love God are called according to his purpose. He didn't say all things are good. Your kids are crazy. That's not good. Your marriage is in trouble. That's not good. But all things work together for good. How do we know that? We know that because God promised it, because he's sovereign. Remember also what he said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Jesus. He's talked about all this theology, right? When you question your salvation, if you're truly a believer, there's no condemnation. He's talked about all this theology. He's climbed this mountain and it's like he gets to the summit right here and he looks out. And if you've ever summited a mountain, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon and you step up and you look up and you go, oh God, you're awesome. It's almost like Paul's writing this letter. And as he gets to this point, it's like, have you ever been talking to somebody? And I, I know you have. Have you ever, you've seen me do it here. You ever been talking to someone uh, and, and man, uh, for you, something wells up within you and you just get overwhelmed and you get emotional? 
That's what Paul's doing right here. He's writing this letter to the Romans and he's helping them understand the depth of God, of salvation, of the gospel, of God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, God's sovereignty. He's helped them understand all this stuff and it's almost like he gets to this point. And in 9 through 11, he sums it up and it's almost like he gets to this point, summits, and he just gets overwhelmed, really. It's almost like he gets overwhelmed and he just stops and he, and, he, and he looks over at everything he's written and he says, God, you are awesome. That's what he's doing. Oh, the depth, he says. That's why he says, uh, oh, the depth of the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. Oh, the depth of the riches, right? I mean, the riches of God are so deep that we can't get to the bottom of who he is. It's almost like he gets to that point. He summits and he looks out and he says, oh God, I gotta just stop and tell you how awesome you are, which is what all theology should do. And you may think, oh man, we're just talking about so much theology and man, I just, I just need to go home and, and stop kicking my dog, you know? And listen, all theology should lead to worship. It should begin and end with worship, and that's what Paul does. And he says, oh, how depth of the riches of God, the riches of his knowledge. Now, think about God's knowledge for a moment. When you praise, when you worship God, we just think about God's knowledge. That ought to cause you to go, oh, God, you're awesome. Think about, what does God know? Everything, right? What does God not know? Nothing. It's called omniscience. God knows everything, nothing he doesn't know. He knows all of the stars in a billion different galaxies. He put them there. He knows the rotations. He put them there. He knows what every cell in your body is doing at this moment. He created it. He's in control of it. He sustains it. He knows the number of hairs on your head. By the way, not a lot of knowledge for most of you as I look around, or a lot of you anyway. Not most of you, we're pretty young church, but a lot of you, right? Getting less knowledge on my head, right? So he knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the number of days in your life. He knows them because he created them. You know, he tells us that before one came to be, he had already established the last and every day in between. He knows everything. There's nothing that God doesn't know. He's omniscient. Now, his omniscience is incredibly comforting and incredibly frightening at the same time. It's incredibly comforting because here's what that means. Everything in your life, no matter what you're facing right now, God knows exactly what's coming next. He knows it because he's in control of it. He's sovereign. We believe God's sovereign. It means he's in total control. It doesn't mean he's sovereign over some things. It doesn't mean he has power. It means he has power and directs all things, right? So it means whatever you're going through right now, God knows. He knows, he knows what you're going through. He knows tomorrow. You don't, okay? It's comforting because God knows everything. It's comforting because when God redeemed you, he knew every sin you would ever commit and he forgave them and, and saved you anyway. Think about that. Think about how comforting that is and how that should cause you to worship Jesus. Because you see, when we sin, man, sometimes we wallow in guilt. And we need to feel guilty, confess it, repent, and move on. Because listen, when, I, when God redeemed me, he knew, I didn't know every sin I would commit. Man, I thought at that point I was perfect, you know. I thought I was perfect before. God had to tell me I wasn't perfect. And then, and then I thought, man, I, I'm, I'm going to live. Man, listen, I blow it every day, right? You do too. God knew every sin I would ever commit, and he forgave every one of them. So here's what that means. In reality, if I know that, theology, that should cause me when I do sin, I confess it, not to be righteous again, 
because I'm already righteous, because there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. So I confess it not to be righteous, but to be holy. I confess it because of my relationship with God. And when I confess it, because of theology, I know he's forgiven it. So I confess it, I repent of it. I don't need to wallow in the guilt of it. He's already taken the guilt of it. He's taken it away. I can drive on and it not suck my life down the drain. He's forgiven me. Think about that. It's comforting to know God knows everything, but it's also terrifying, isn't it? God knows everything. Listen, you can't hide anything from God. You can't hide it. It's silly for you to think you can hide that little sin you're committing from God. If I just don't mention it to him, if I say, God, forgive my sins, he'll forgive it. But he really don't. It's almost like I don't even think he knows it's there. Hey, listen, I always tell people, don't just ask God to forgive your sins in general. Name them, no matter how they sound to you. Maybe you can't name them because you're embarrassed and gross. Good, right? That's more powerful. Name them. God knows it. He knows everything about you. That's why he says his judgment is unsearchable. His judgment is just. His judgments are true because he knows everything. Now think about this. Think about a a judge sitting on a bench. Most of our judges sitting on the bench are pretty smart people, right? I mean, they're pretty smart people. And so they're sitting on the bench and they're smart, but they don't always make correct judgments. Sometimes they make wrong judgments. Why? Because they don't know all the facts. I mean, a lot of times, I don't know if you know this or not, but people are honest in court. And so they don't know all the facts, right? I mean, I'm a parent and I have to make judgments. You know, I hear screaming going on in the next room. I go in and I see one's doing something. I see one screaming. One says something. Boy, I can lie in and whoop one of them in a heartbeat. And I find out 30 minutes later, I whooped the wrong one. So you got to go back and whoop the other one four times to make up for it, right? As parents, we don't always make good judgments, do we? We're wrong in our judgments sometimes. But God never is. You see, the point is, I'm not omniscient. So sometimes I punish the wrong kid. A judge on the bench is not omniscient, so sometimes he renders the wrong verdict, but not God. That's why you can always count on his judgments being pure, just, right, and true, because he knows everything. So what does that mean? That means that when we look out and we begin to question God, we begin to say, God, why did you kill all the firstborn in Egypt? I don't know. Is that fair? God, why did did you destroy everybody on earth but but Noah and his family? God, why did you choose Jacob and not Esau? All those things that we look at, and God, why is this not happening for me? God, why why is that person, he's far from you, but he's got that. And look, all those questions we need to say, whoa, 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 we need to stop. We need to say, God, you are omniscient. Listen, you know everything. Most people in our world don't know the difference between a man and a woman. God knows everything. Okay, he's a little bit higher. God's omniscient. He knows everything. His judgments are pure. His judgment is right. His judgment's unsearchable. That's what Paul is saying. Then he talks about how deep is his wisdom. What is the wisdom? Knowledge is the, wisdom, uh, is, is the facts, right? Wisdom is what you do with them. It's the application of knowledge. And so God's wisdom concerns how he does what he does. It's how he directs and controls all things. And God directs all things to work together in accordance with his knowledge to a specific end to fulfill his specific sovereign purpose. That's God's wisdom. God knows everything. That's the depth of his knowledge. His wisdom is he takes all that and he's directing everything to fulfill his his purpose. He's in control of all things, Paul says. He's directing and he's in control of all things and that causes Paul to go, oh God, this knowledge, this knowledge of the gospel, 
this knowledge of Jesus giving me his righteousness, this knowledge of the fact that I'm not condemned any longer no matter what I do, no matter how many times I fail you, you won't fail me. Oh God, that makes me go, you're awesome. The fact that no matter what life throws at me, all things work together. Some of it's gonna be horrible, but all things are gonna work together for good because you're sovereign. God, you're awesome. All of the knowledge of God that I gain is through, through theology makes me go, God, you are amazing. Sometimes I believe our worship is so cold and our hearts are so cold because we don't understand the depth of the riches of the knowledge, the wisdom of God. We don't think about them because they should make us go, wow. But look at this. Notice Paul didn't only worship God for what he knew about God. He did. He knew he was omniscient. He knew he was omnipotent. He knew he was omnipresent. Uh, he, he knew, in other words, that he knew everything. He was everywhere. He, had all, all, uh, he was all powerful. He knew that, but he also worshiped him for the things he didn't know about God. Did you get that? He said, he used the terms unsearchable, inscrutable, right? He says, God, I worship you for what I know, and I worship you because I can't know everything. The depths of the riches. I can't get to the bottom of you, God. You're amazing. I don't know everything. Think about it. He's talked about God's sovereignty, election and God's sovereignty. And that causes people to go, uh, 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 you know, it causes us to get a little tight uh, sometimes. God's sovereignty. But he's talked about man's responsibility. He's talked about man's responsibility. Now, does Paul know how all of those two things come to, both of those things come to, no, he doesn't. And you know what that caused him to do? It caused him to fight and debate, get all tense and walk out. No, it doesn't. He didn't give us these things to cause us to debate. He gave us these things to cause us to worship because we can't get to the bottom of him. We can't. And so when we look at these things, here's what we got to understand. If your God is, big, is small enough for you to figure out, he's not big enough for you to worship, folks. And that's what Paul is saying. There is a Latin axiom. It's called, uh, uh, this Latin axiom, and it's called finitum non capax infinitum. Now, that's not something from Harry Potter or something. That, uh, it's, it, it's, it's finitum non capax infinitum. What it means is simply this. The finite cannot fully grasp the infinite. We can't. We can't. And so, you know, when we're teaching us all these theology and we know God is sovereign, man, that makes me go, God, you're sovereign. God, you chose me, but I didn't chose you. God, thanks for choosing me. God, thank you that you saved me. Thank you that the Holy Spirit convicted me when I know man's responsible. Man, I, I, I know that man's responsible and, 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 and man, you have to, how those things come together. I don't know, but that's what makes it so amazing to me. God is just so good. We can't write this stuff. No human being could write this stuff. Only God, and that should cause us to do like Paul. He gets to this point in Romans, and he stops, and he's just like he wells up, and he says, oh, God, you're awesome. You're God, I'm not. And we need to remember that every day. You're God, I'm not. And so then he goes in in verses 34 and 35, and he asks some questions based on quotes from Isaiah and Job to remind us that we can praise him because we can trust him. He asks, who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Oh boy, you know, that's a great question we need to ask ourselves because we want to do that all the time, don't we? I mean, we want to tell God, we want to tell God what he should do. Oh God, I, I, don't, I think you're missing something about my life here because this would be a lot better if you'd do this, right? Oh God, I don't understand that Jacob and Esau thing, choosing one, not the other, doesn't seem fair. And so God, I don't, you know, oh God, I, I don't know about 
you know, taking the firstborn. That, that seems awful harsh, God. And I don't know about all the, the you know, why, destroy. Uh, that's what we want to do. We want to counsel God. Can, can you imagine this? Think, think about how silly this would be. Think about how, man, let's say we could get God on Skype, okay? And we Skype God in. Like, hey, God, you know, and, and, and we're talking to God. And before, and before we hang up, what if God said, hey, 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 I, I need to ask y'all something, man. I'm in a quandary up here. What do y'all think I should do about this North Korea thing? Is that silly? I mean, what if we, God had said, hey, I, listen, y'all are down there in America. And y'all got a little chondry going on. I mean, y'all's, y'all's nation, you know, it's a, what in the world should I do about this election? Which one should I put in? You think, I mean, you think, God, that's silly, isn't it? Now, do we need to pray about North Korea? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Do we need to pray about our election? Oh, yeah. But don't presume to be able to tell God who he should put in office. Don't presume to be able to tell God about what he should do in our world. Okay, there's a difference in asking God, uh, you know, uh, and, and praying to God and talking to God and trying to tell God what he should do. Okay? And that's what he's saying. Who has been God's counselor? Can any of you think you, you know something God doesn't know? He's, he's omniscient. Any of you think that you can counsel God, that you know better? Listen, we all think we know better. You know, we all think, but, but listen, we're just like kids. The things that we want would destroy us most of the time, right? I mean, all we got to do is think back over our unanswered prayers in our life, and we'd be able to thank God that he knows more than we. I mean, just half the, half the, the people that you ask God to let marry you or you, let you marry, if you look back over those people today, you fall on your knees and praise. And so you need to do that often. Thank you, God. Look at that girl now. Right? I mean, thank you, God. That, that guy, boy, he, he is a doofus right? I mean, listen, what you want would destroy you half the time, right? We're just like kids. And so, so, uh, we can't teach and we can't advise God, but that's, that's what we do. And, and listen, God is God and I'm not. That's what Paul's coming down to the point of. And you either need to learn that now because you will one day. And if you wait till you're before him, it'll be too late. Right? And so, uh, as we look at this, and he quotes Job, and he says, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? In other words, man, you, you can't obligate God to anything. You, you can't do anything. Many people think, man, that's where, this is where salvation by works and righteousness comes in. I can do enough to make God owe me salvation. No. No, you can't. I can be smart. No, you can't. You can't oblige God to anything. You can't do anything to make God repay you. Everything he has belongs to him everything, right? It all comes from him. That's why, uh, you know, in verse 36, he says that God is the first effective and last cause of everything. Everything is from him, to him, and for him, which means he's the first cause of everything. He's the effective cause of everything. He is the last cause of everything. Everything is from him, for him, and to him. So, so I can tell you four ways to love your job, five ways to have a better marriage, three ways to be a better dad, two ways to manage your money better, or here's what I can tell you. Everything in your life is about the glory of God. I can tell you that your marriage, you want to have a better marriage, I can tell you to do this, 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 or I can say you live in your marriage to glorify God in every aspect of your marriage, and I promise your marriage will be better. If both, if both husband and wife does that. I can tell you about your parenting. I can tell you about your money. You live for your money to be about God and to bring glory to God. You live for your everything in your sex, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your job. It's about God. It's for God. It's from God. It's to God. God is God. I am not. 
1714, Louis XIV of France, he died. And he called himself uh, Louis the Great. He was full of himself. Right? Sort of like Ali. He was full of himself. He called himself Louis the Great. His, his, uh, uh, his whole, uh, everything about his, his, his rule was just the greatest in Europe. His, his palace, everything. When he died, he wanted his funeral to reflect his greatness to the world. And so he planned out his funeral. And his funeral, he planned out he was going to be in a gold casket. He was going to be paraded through the streets uh, of France and, and then taken into the cathedral. Into the cathedral, it was going to be dimly lit with no lights, but a special candle placed over the casket so all eyes would be drawn to him and his greatness. That's what he wanted people to remember. He was great. So thousands of people flood to his funeral, flood into the cathedral, and as his casket's in front of everyone, when he died, the, the, uh, the bishop steps forward. I think his name was Massaloni. He steps forward. And when he steps forward, the place is silent. Louis leaves uh, directions to make everything about him great. He's laying in the casket, gold casket, nothing lit but him. The bishop steps forward reaches over, snuffs out the candle, and the only thing he says is, only God is great. I said, good for him, man, good for him. Only God is great. Learn that today. Learn that now before it's too late. Only God is great. God is God, I'm not. So Paul, as he gets to, to this part of, of Romans, 11.33, really he begins, you can see he shifts gears here. He looks at all this theology and he wells up. And he says, oh God, we worship you. Knowing all these things should change your worship. Yeah, when we meet corporately, it should change your worship. But when you live your life, it should change how you worship and living your life. So today I wonder those of you who are not yet believers in Jesus Christ. I'm wondering today if the Holy Spirit is convicting you, and I'm wondering today if, because he's sovereign, but I'm wondering today because you're responsible, if you'll respond. Will you respond to the gospel? We want to help you to understand God is God and you're not. Will you respond to the gospel? You'll never get there on your own. You'll never, do, you'll never be good enough, do good enough. You can never oblige God to salvation. Only Jesus only faith, only grace. Today, will you allow today to be the day of your salvation? Come and talk to us. Those of you who are believers, man, when you think about all these things, no condemnation for those in Jesus. I deserved wrath, but I get heaven, I get love, I get peace, I get grace because of Jesus. When you, when you think about the fact that all things work together for good of those who love the Lord called according to his purpose, Man, when you think about all these wonderful, wonderful things Paul's been teaching, when you think about that, does it cause you to worship? Does it cause you to just literally trust God and worship? He's magnificent. When I read Romans, man, it doesn't cause stress in me any longer. What it causes is joy. It causes, God, I worship you because I know you much more, and I worship you because I know there's much more that I don't know about you. Does it cause you to worship? I pray it does. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to go into our time of response. After each message, we give you a time of response because we think you should respond when you hear the Word of God. Some of you can respond by giving your life to Jesus. Come and see us. Some of you respond, but you already have, and you need to worship Him. Repent. Today, we're going to respond in a couple of other ways, too. We're going to respond, first off, by taking communion together. So I want to tell you what communion is. Communion is very simply Jesus instituted this for us to remember Him. The night before He was died, He wanted us to remember His death. 
He was celebrating Passover with his disciples, and he transformed it. We don't do Passover anymore. We do the Lord's Supper, which is this. He took a piece of bread. It was unleavened. It represented, uh, uh, the leaven represented sin, so it was unleavened. He broke it, and he passed it around and said, this is my body. They didn't get it. He wasn't crucified. He wasn't murdered yet. They didn't get it, but the next day, and after he'd come back from the grave, they would. He took that bread, and he broke it and said, this is my body. Eat it in remembrance of me. He did that so that we would remember. He took, picked up wine, and we use juice because we know some of you have a problem, some of you have issues, so we used, just use juice. And so, so he took wine. It's a symbol, so it doesn't matter. He took wine, and he passed that wine around and said, this is my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. Drink it. Remember me. He did this so that we'd remember him. We'd remember. We'd preach the gospel so that we'd examine ourselves, right? And so, so we do this. He didn't tell us how often to do it. He said, as often as you do it. We do it quite often to remember. If you're a Christian, this is for Christians. If you're not a Christian, if your child's here, not yet been a believer, hold them back. This is for Christians. Doesn't matter if you're a member of our church. If you're a Christian, if you've surrendered to Jesus, this is for you. So what's gonna happen is, is after I pray, Travis and our band's going to come out after I pray. They're going to start playing. Our usher's going to pass around this plates and, and, and in these trays, and they've got two cups. The bottom cup is a, a, just a small piece of unleavened bread because it's just a symbol. The top is a, a, some juice. So we want you to take that, and we want you to hold it. And then um, Paul said in Corinthians, because the Corinthian church was like a wild and crazy church. They were doing everything wrong, basically. And they were getting drunk on the communion wine, and, and, and they were, uh, you know, doing all these things. And so Paul wrote to them how to correct this. And in that, he said, when you do this, and one of the things he said was examine yourself when you do the Lord's Supper. It's not about coming together and getting drunk on the Lord's Supper wine and all that kind of stuff. It's about remembering the blood of Jesus, and that ought to cause you to repent. So he said, examine yourself. Examine yourself. So we want you to do that. Take this. Pray. If there's any sin in your life, confess it. Examine yourself. Then when you're ready, take that piece of bread, thank Jesus for his body that was broken, and eat it. Thank Jesus, then take that cup, thank Jesus for his blood that was spilled. Leviticus says life is in the blood. His blood's important. Thank him for his blood that was spilled and drink it. And then worship. And as you leave, if you'll take those cups with you and throw them in a trash can outside, that'd be great. And then after that, we're going to take up our offering. Okay, so if you leave, we know you don't give, but uh, just kidding, I say that, I'm just kidding. I, I'm not gonna give here, I've already given online, okay? So I, I'm really kidding. Uh, you can give online, you can give by text, you can give here, but we're gonna take up our offering after that, okay? And so uh, uh, that's another way we respond. And so I'll be out in the front. If, you want any, if, you're, if you're not a believer, come and see me, right? So let's worship together, let's do communion together, let's give, let's praise, let's confess, let's repent, let's do all those glorious things for the glory of God, because we can trust him. Father, we love you, we praise you. And God, today, God, we want you. God, I pray that those in here today, I, I pray that th those that don't know you would be under an overwhelming conviction. And God, I pray that they would respond. I pray they would respond, God. I pray, Lord, that as we celebrate communion, that we would remember your sacrifice, that it would change us. God, I thank you for instituting this memorial, and I pray that in this memorial we would think about Jesus only, grace only, faith only, knowing that we can't oblige you to salvation, but we can trust you for it, and I pray that we would. Thank you for your death and burial and resurrection. 
and thank you that we identify with that and Lord that applied to our life causes us to pass from death into life I pray that we would worship you that we would give that we would repent Lord that we would do all those things for your sake and your glory God so that we might honor you in all we do help us to leave different in Jesus name Amen